Welcome to this Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. On today's show, our guest is Kevin Carpenter. He is a Law in Sport editorial board member and former editor of Law in Sport. He runs his own consultancy business, Captivate Legal and Sports Solution, and is special counsel for sports integrity at the leading global sports technology and data company, Genius Sport. He's also acted for and been engaged by a number of major private and public bodies, including the IOC, FIFA, Council of Europe, Interpol, and the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime. In this episode, Kevin talks about his career, where he started out, where he is now, and that journey and process that he's gone through, and sheds light on what he sees as some of the most important issues and developments in the sports integrity space, but also in sports governance, and how his views has shifted over the years as he's been more deeply involved in the sports sector. I enjoyed the interview. It was a more informal interview than I've done in the past. I hope you enjoy it too. If you'd like to give us any feedback, you can do. Our Twitter handle is at Sport. My handle is at SPCOTT. Other than that, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, Mr. Carpenter. <laughs> Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here, as always. <laughs> how, how are you? I'm, I'm very well. Yeah, very good, thanks. Yeah. So, for those of you who aren't familiar, you would have heard from the, from the intro, and I'm sure many of you will know Kevin um, from previous podcasts, from being an editor of Law and Sport, and for some of the other things he's done in between that. <laughs> and since A few then, other bits and pieces. A few other bits and pieces. Here and there. Um, and I thought it'd be good, one, since we need to catch up anyway... Um, to actually have a bit of a discussion around your career to date, what yeah. you've learned, uh, what your thoughts are on the current sort of trends in the, from your perspective in, mm. in, in sport and sports law, um, both in sort of your work for Genius Sport and also for the Captivate work that you do as well. Mm. Um, so to start off with, if you look back over your career since we've known each other, since you started in sports law. Yeah. Did you think you'd be doing what you're doing now? Oh, wow. Uh, well, I, th- I think the first thing to say is that before we even met, I didn't even know sports or existed. Um, so if I know, if I knew now, if I, if I knew then that there was even this area of law, I would have done it a different way. But actually, I think, as I say to a lot of people who are looking to get into it now, especially if they're students, Moving in, um, you know, I think, and I'm not alone in this, you know, I, I, I trained at a very good law firm and that gave me a great sort of base to move forward from there. So, uh, you know, in, in one sense, maybe it was good that I didn't know at that time. Um, and it was really not not seen much of a discipline of its own then. So it's amazing to think that in the coming up to a decade now, I think, since we first met, um, what's happened and how it's developed into where it is now. It's frightening that's gone that so quickly, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it really is. Yeah. Um, it's a pattern that you see repeated, I don't know about you, but for me, when you speak to sports lawyers, established sports lawyers mm-hmm. all over the world, it's, yeah, I can give you a list of them. Dr. Renan Martin was a recent one I spoke to in, from Germany. He was at the UA France Open Symposium. Mm-hmm. Taku Yamazaki, Glenn Wong, um, Mark James, Michael Belloff. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the list is endless. And it, 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 it sounds... Yeah, it's a very similar pattern of behaviour that's yeah. occurred in all over the world. 
you know, the people go, oh, I wasn't quite aware of it. I had a passion for sport. I got into it in a certain capacity. Obviously, we're seeing now though, more more youngsters been having the opportunity to go and work for either a unique sports practice or some of the football clubs like Southampton Football Club offering training contracts. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. crazy, right? Yeah. So, so, and also the, the the big range of different, not just academic courses for students and masters programs, but also professional courses now. So to pull you back on what you said, you said, mm. yeah, if you knew now. Or well, if you knew then, sorry, what you knew now, you mm. may have done it differently. What would you have done differently? To, to be honest, I think in a lot of ways, the way I did it was uh, probably in some ways unique to how it's done now. As I say, most people you speak to have done some kind of sports law course or sports law training. And I, I just went down the picking an area that I was passionate about or thought was going to be a growing area and, and really driving that with and having a passion and hopefully showing that through the writing initially. Mm. And that's obviously how I first got noticed and started doing the, the speaking, the presentation, the education sessions. Um, so I think, but, but I also think, and we've said this more broadly about legal practice, again, you, you know, you have to find some balance, I think. And it was also helpful for me with my interest in sport outside of the law. So I think that undoubtedly my sort of refereeing background has been a huge help to me um, my whole world revolves around rules and regulations in sport, essentially, which for some people, you know, might sound a bit dry, but actually the two, you know, I think it helps to have an active involvement in sport at whatever level to understand um, how it works and the people and the passion that people have. Uh, and certainly when I moved into the governance side and working on as a, you know, non-exec director, and I think that's actually... Coming back to your original question, I think I think if you can do that, that's an incredible um, eye-opening experience to work on a board. And and again, I went into it with no formal training, no, you know, I've been involved in committees and done bits of sort of people management stuff, but I'd never been involved in a formal board situation. So so that's interesting you say that though, because obviously I know you on a personal level and you're very, very don't want to, not that you get embarrassed easy, but you're <laughs> but you're. Uh, um, yeah, very intelligent guy, very capable. Mm. I remember when you were applying for that position and we spoke about it. Um, and you know, my view on it was, and still is the case with non-executive positions, is that qualified lawyers, well-trained lawyers, mm. um, ideally with some sports expertise or experience, can add real value to uh, just through the, the applying their legal training in yeah. a board setting, right? Asking the right questions, finding out where the facts are, you know, how well, to it, present the information. Yeah, well, if you're a company secretary and if you say, say for example, you know, somebody says to me, how, how does my experience in a corporate law seat in a training contract move across to sitting on sports? But, well, it's the same thing. It's just in a different sector. You still have to comply with the same rules and regulations and, uh, you know, company law and et cetera. It's the same principle. And especially since the Code of Governance came in, talking purely from a UK perspective, mm. Um, it's never been more important to have a strong sort of regulatory compliance grasp on things because it's tied so closely to funding now as well. So so for those that aren't familiar, and I think I've got to be careful here because obviously I know your background, <laughs> there's any problem with doing podcasts in London, <laughs> not in a studio, but in the office. You can hear all the, the, the ambulances and police sirens. <laughs> the, um, we're, we're keeping it real. Keeping That's it what real. it's about. Yeah. It. Um, so you were, you were training at a law firm. We mm. got in contact um, for a friend, I think it was, who introduced mm. us. You wanted to write on match fixing. That was the area I thought was going to be the next big sort of integrity regulatory area. And that was that was a while ago. 
2008, 2009? It was 2000. No, it might have been later than that. 2011, maybe. Well, I think the first time, and I'll use LinkedIn for this, that's the only way I can keep track of my career these days. I think it was 2010, roughly. Yeah. Um, so that's when Lauren Sport was just literally just really Pretty started. much just getting yeah. going, yeah. Yeah, because um, yeah, it was before, it was 2011, I think it was actually. End of 2010. Sorry, it would be. Yeah, yeah that's the first year of my training contract. Yeah, because it came yeah, up to the London Games in 2012. And so, obviously, you approached me, we had a discussion around it, and said, oh, why don't you do an overview of, of what was going on in, in match fixing? I thought, well, it might have been your suggestion. I said, yeah, it sounds like a great idea. Yeah. Turn into a three parter yeah. in terms of length. And then it was picked up by the ISL, I get confused, review, I think it was, Michael Belloff edited yeah, at the time. Sports Law Journal review. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they, um, and it's kind of in a way that people still quote that piece and the, the version of Law in Sport, because obviously my views have changed on a lot of things since then, <laughs> but that's still the most quoted thing I see. And I guess that comes back to a little bit, um, I still think that's possibly one of the best things I've ever written looking back mm. but I say things have changed since then do you not think that part of that reason is and I say this all the time as you know we've got the mentoring scheme uh, that we're running at the mm. moment and we've obviously got the recruitment division and we're just trying to help people as you know like, yeah. from a career perspective and I say to some of these uh, they don't have to be young actually I always say youngsters but that's not strictly true sometimes it can just be people new to the to the sector, right? Who's yeah, a lot of people experience. I teach on the courses are not, you know, no. they're not fresh and they're not and so new so into the profession. Yeah, and I think, yeah, so I think um, in terms of new to sports, or as I was just saying, mm. when you are new to it, I think you're so fortunate because like you at that moment in time, you've got a fresh pair of eyes and you see the world differently and therefore you may explain stuff or investigate something, yeah. question something that everyone else just takes for granted. Yeah. I'm kind of jealous in some ways because I, <laughs> I remember, you know, and no, don't get me wrong I still don't know a lot of things <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah I know that feeling yeah. even in my own film this is the thing this is the, this is what you come through there's so much content on law and sport that I'd, I'd love to read about different areas but I can't keep up with what's been published in my own field so it's you, you know only this year we've had the Law Commission of India report, which is over 100 pages. The Australian Review into Match Fixing Integrity in Gambling, which is over 100 pages. The Tennis Integrity Review report. And all of a sudden, on top of working and as well, practising, that, where, you know, yeah. it's just not yeah. the and opportunity. The, and then all the developments with the Council of Europe. and Well, uh, yeah. And yeah. Then, yeah. You, you have to, you have to, and you don't have this luxury, unfortunately. <laughs> but, you know, from my perspective, I have to be quite choosy now about what, as much as from a purely academic and intellectual perspective, I'd love to read everything that's published there because I find it fascinating to learn about other people's areas. And that's how I started out. I think the first three or four years of being involved with law and sport in particular, obviously I covered a very broad range, and particularly when I was editor, I was yeah. edit, reviewing all sorts of things. But now I've had to kind of say, well, what what are my specialist areas and what where do I have value and where do people look to me for... And I think the, the biggest... Um, the best example of that, and again, as much as many things we do, there's no real financial, direct financial benefit to it. I think the things I wrote for Lauren Sport over time on the blog about proportionality, that led to me being asked by the CAS on a, as part of the pro bono list to represent a tennis player last, last year, or might have been the year before, and that's now the leading case on proportionality. And we managed, so I actually applied. I got an opportunity to test my theories mm. in writing in an actual sporting case 
and have the support to buy experienced arbitrators. Mm. So it goes to show the link through. I'm glad you say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, thanks. High five. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but, but um, it was... But, but it, I like to think, though, yeah, on that point, and oh, well, uh, I think that's part of the reason you know, we have our review process in the way that we do, and we do have some of the best lawyers in the world on our editorial board, yeah, yeah. for this very reason, is the sense that we, we, I like to think that we try to robustly test all of the arguments that are put forward and we push back on all the authors um, as much as possible. The <laughs> police are after me. The, um, the um, yeah, as much as possible for this, for this very reason, that if it's not actually accurate, if it's not, uh, if they're not robust legal arguments, then what, why would we be publishing it? Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's really important because particularly, I think, more so nowadays where there's such a, a, a influx of just general information without as much emphasis on quality. Well, there's a lot of noise, isn't there? there is and, and, you know, we've had this discussion particularly, obviously, obviously this is sort of driven by social media, trying to cut through the noise to the actual key pieces. And I think we're all guilty, or certainly I am, sometimes we're just retweeting something without properly looking at it. Yeah. And you, we all do that because of time. It's hard, and I'm very disciplined with that. You and are very disciplined I, with that. And enough, because sometimes I, I've retweeted stuff and I thought, oh, best double check Best read that. it first. Yeah, yeah. But no, yeah. after I've already retweeted it, and I think, oh, oh yeah. God, that's, a, that's a risky business because it might be appearing that you've endorsed something, even though it's not an endorsement. Um, it could be perceived as if you're endorsing something. You, you'd like to think people who work in the sector are more nuanced than that. But actually now, I mean... You know, the other week I ticked over 6,000 followers. So there's going to be a lot of people who are not in the sector who are just general public who, for some reason, find my general, ra- as I call them, my professional musings and general ramblings <laughs> love, quite interesting. I love Lu- Lu- so. Lewis Wiltshire, who's a consultant at Seven League, says that he was on one of our panels once and he went, I oh, had something like ten or 20,000 followers. He was former head of sport at Twitter. In the oh, yeah, yeah. And he went, I think half of them are dead. <laughs> and he went, what he meant was in their they're dead accounts, as in they're not actually using them. And I think... I think I've, that's why I always think about the number of followers I've got because I think if the number of followers was any indication of how many people were reading it, I'd have many more retweets than Well, well, when I, I think when I sort of tweeted out and said, "Oh, thanks for your support, and I'm glad you enjoy," you know, what's out there? Somebody said it's probably a lot, a load of Russian bots. <laughs> I was like, oh, "Just let me have you know, 24 hours of sort of basking in the glory." But um, uh, so, it's so probably right. But coming back to you, coming back to you. So that, mm. that's great, and and thanks. You're always very good at bigging up Lawrence Sport, <laughs> so I appreciate it. But the um. Coming back to your career, mm. so you were obviously you're a big a big law firm. You started mm. to re- do writing mm. for Law and Sport. We started to write, I should say, for Law and Sport. And then I got you involved as, as an editor. I needed help. I went like, can you? Can, would you mind being yeah. an editor? You were so passionate about it, and uh, did a great job doing that. And I mean, I was talking about someone about this the other day. How committed you were, given that you were working silly hours. How much? Well, and that was also a, well. It kind of. So it was partially coming towards the end of my training contract from what I remember, but also, and this is the this is something why I think people get me to do careers tours, because I am brutally honest about what happened. You know, I left a major sort of successful city law firm. I didn't apply for a job in the mistaken belief in that I could get into sport, and I didn't. And I was, you know, I signed on. I was on the dole for three months trying to get there. And during that time, that's when I took on more editorial responsibilities, went to conferences, um, I wasn't, you know, I didn't let pride get in the way. Um, and eventually I had to take whatever job was available. 
that's just the reality of things yeah and uh, and part of that is also as you know like when you're out of a job it's harder to get one when you're in one yeah yeah that in itself is a big big obstacle but so so eventually though you know you did get a a job as a lawyer and then you went to work for 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 a firm in manchester i think it was Was so yeah so i've had i've had experience obviously i've trained at a big corporate floor firm then i worked for a, a small sort of manchester only based commercial practice doing ip work and a bit of litigation then I got went to Hill Dickinson, which is obviously a national firm with a bit of European presence, but this is mainly a national role to build on their Northwest sports practice in London. Um, so I moved back to London again, um, and that didn't work out for various reasons after sort of a couple of years. And then I was back out the door again and thinking, where do I go now? You know, I've, um, I've had the rug pulled from under me again, thinking I've got and, there. And at that time, were you did you well, did you have a non-exec position at that? I can't remember. The next position where you sit on judicial committees. Yeah, so it's coming up to with British Volleyball, so one of the two boards I sit on, it's coming up to just over five years now. And I'm actually stepping away in January for the reason that it's time for some fresh impetus and you know, some of the skills you, you gain through. So I've actually just run a full recruitment process voluntarily and got three high quality people who are already working in sport but want to give to another sport. Oh and using their skills so what one of my key messages to the board has been please don't waste this opportunity yeah. <laughs> when these great people are going to be working but it's um, it's tinged with a bit of sadness from my perspective because I've been there through the worst times of the organization when all the funding was taken mm-hmm. and um but I've done I've done all I can do now you know you you, you do run its course and it's good practice anyways I agree I, 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 I think that's the you know I'm on my own business and I think that it's unhelpful sometimes <laughs> me running it, you know, in the sense of for, for legacy, yeah, yeah. it depends what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. Uh, but you can get in your own way. And I Absolutely. Think, you know, yeah. I, think, I think also there's more, many more opportunities out there. Um, so you, you, you left Hill Dickinson and then what? So then I, um, well, I had to move back home because I couldn't have moved forward. So I moved back to live with my, uh, my dad and my stepmom back in Sheffield. And I decided that I thought I could do this without the help of a law firm. So I set up my own regulated practice at, I was 29 then. And obviously some people thought it was great, some people thought I was crazy, which is fair enough. I thought you were both. <laughs> well, I think it helps have a healthy dose of both working in this in this space. But um, yeah, and, and, and then I, So, so I, I know, and I, you might go into this though. Mm. So, so because you get a lot of these questions nowadays from people as well, it's like, you know, so immediately you do that. Most people think, mm. as you did, right? How do I get insured? Where, who? Are oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. How do I keep my practicing certificate? What do I, you know, and you went through a whole bunch of different scenarios in terms of, and particularly at the time when matrixing was, is, you know, your area of expertise mm. anti-corruption was prominent, but nowhere near as it became in the, mm. in the following years. And so at that point, you, I know that you had some anxiety around whether or not you were going to do more sports consultancy or whether you were going to do more yeah. uh, legal practice. <clears throat> So what, what shape, in the end, what, what did you do to acquire as much information as possible? And then how did you, what did you uh, decide to do? Well, on a practical level, I had to tread very carefully because once I left a law firm, I didn't have insurance, although I was still regulated. And obviously, it's a criminal offence to practice without <laughs> insurance, etc. So 
um, there were people asking me to do things. I was like, I, I can't. You know, as frustrated as that was, I've got. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna go down the route setting on my own practice, I have to do it. So as you say, people come up to you and say, "How did you do it?" So so many people have asked me over the years. I now have like a crib sheet which I basically send to people and say, "This was the timeline. These were the costs. This is how I did it." So that was a very practical base, and I say, "Learn from my mistakes." For example, I made a big mistake with the went with the wrong insurance supplier, and it cost me more than five times what it should have done wow. in hindsight. So that was, you know, a thousand pound gone before. Is that because you only went to one first of all, or did you go to multiple? And... It was because of the, the way in which obviously now in the UK, you can be, so although I'm a solicitor and regulated by the SRA, the Solicitors Regulation Authority, as a solicitor, my firm's a Bar Standards Board authorised entity. And therefore I can get regulated through Bar Mutual, which is this big, where every barrister essentially were normally set up, obviously they're all self-employed. Mm-hmm. And regulated, uh, insured through there, and the regulator didn't understand that the insurer. So I got insured by an SRA authorized insurer who thought I was a, a, a practice in a solicitor's sense, right. which I wasn't obviously right. really in reality. Um, so, I, but I only learnt that twelve months later. <laughs> uh, so that was a painful financial um, lesson to and, learn. And. And so you set up Captivate, yep. Yep. and I always get this legal service, legal, legal and, and sports solutions. solutions. Yeah, I got it wrong once years ago, and forever, forever more. Never let you nervous. forget it. No, you never let forget. Yeah, uh, every week a WhatsApp. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the um, uh, and so you set that up, uh, and what was the type of work that you were involved with uh, then, and how was it received? Yeah, so one one me- the the big major piece of work that came in early was, um, so I'd, I'd already worked with FIFA um, when they were with Interpol, when they had the sort of anti-match fixing programme going on around the world. I'd already been around with them to different countries, k- delivering what was a, um, what we called a, a topic on good governance to tackle match fixing. So it's a bit of a hybrid governance integrity session. And after that, I'd, I'd, I'd had a conversation with uh, the guy who's now head of integrity at UEFA, but he was at FIFA at that time. There's a big investigation going on in relation to just before the South Africa World Cup, and this is all public knowledge now. So he said, uh, would you like to help us with this? We need somebody to help us review the documents, write the pay Because it's quite a unique system, as I'm sure people listening know. The UEFA, sorry, the FIFA sort of judicial system's quite unique. So I was actually engaged by the integrity department, not by the legal department. So I actually sat on the other side of the table with the integrity investigators rather than with the lawyers. So you, you like the interview I did with, I was telling you about with Gunter Junger talking about this, yeah. with, their, with their investigators and how they keep away the, um, essentially they keep the investigator away from uh, where the, the, sort of the, yeah. the, the intelligence unit is. Yeah. And so they make sure that they can, the investigator can just go about their business without being, having any forms of bias, can investigate, acquire all the evidence. And as well, the intelligence team then don't have to uh, risk giving away who the an informant may be. Or... Yeah. And then shortly after that, um, I, a person I work with, I've worked with for a few years now, Paul Scott, who's a former retired police chief and was at the BHA for a long time. Uh, we, we were asked by the UN ODC to write the investigation guide for match fixing. Uh, and so those two things took up basically all my time, but also gave me a regular source of income up until mm. the investigation was finished. And, and really. it's one of those things, I think, when you go on your own as well, 
I know this from a bunch of people who, uh, and groups of people who mm. set up their own firms. There's always that nervousness that you're always looking ahead going, oh, great, I'm busy for six months, I'm busy for a year, but then yeah. what? And there's always that, and I think lawyers generally have that mindset well, as well. Well, you need to focus on the now, yeah, on the stuff that you've got now, but also, yeah, be planning for the next day. And when it is literally just me doing, although I set up the corporate vehicle because I didn't want it to be a carpenter and co sort of, <laughs> Loaf, I wanted an actual... Sounds, sounds like a band. Yeah. Well, I want an actual brand if at some point I did want to hire people and expand, which never hasn't happened up to date. But And, and, and then what happened from there? So that, that ran successfully for uh, over two years with, uh, with various interests in it. And I say it kind of covered three areas, really. So there was the traditional legal advice, I guess. Then there was um, academic and professional training. So, as I say, working with yeah, universities and also uh, people like the ICSA on sports governance. And then there was more the specialist regulatory work and sitting on uh, disciplinary panels. So that was the kind of mix I had when um, Steve Burton from Junior Sports, the managing director, and I, and I honestly wasn't looking for another employed role at that time. But he came along and I had a chat with him and um, I decided to join essentially on the strength of him as a person and knowing how good a person he is in this field, but he is a people person. And also Ben Patterson, who's my colleague who runs the monitoring system. Um, and we negotiated, uh, so I work, do both part-time now, and I'm just about getting to a point where there's a good mix. And obviously there is a lot of overlap, so it's still a bit of a balancing act, but I have a very sort of open dialogue with and, and for genius. those, I'm sure most people will be familiar mm. with Genius Sport, but for those that aren't, maybe you want to... Yeah, well, well, I well, I remember when I, what I thought I knew about Genius Sports, when I then went to one of the commercial away day kind of things, and so you should go on this to learn about the business. Um, you know, I think everybody knows that it started out as Bet Genius, and it was a, a service provider to the betting industry. Uh, but actually now it's a global technology and uh, software and data company, yeah, as far as I'm concerned. And was it um, Apex? Was it Apex has recently bought, Capital, yeah. yeah, off the back of, um, and obviously this went on f- far above my level, but I think when the US market opened up, obviously the, the commercial opportunities, I th- but I think people have been um, along, as, as people may or may not know, you know, us and Genius Sports and Sport Radio are the two sort of leaders in this field, when it comes to data and integrity and all the yeah. uh, really, as you said, your data tech, both are data and tech companies, really. That, that's and the way that, I describe it. Yeah. And that, and that, I agree, and I think that's that's to be blunt. That's where the money is, right? Is yeah, yeah. And it's uh, both in terms of having to build the infrastructure and data centers yeah. and everything else to, to 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 move that data, store it, and move it real quick. Yeah. Um, essentially, and. Uh, uh, and also from a commercial perspective then to commercialise it. But pro- professionally, how it appealed to me and why I decided to, to, to join was the fact that it would open doors to organisations that I wouldn't be able to do on my own. Not because I don't think I could have achieved it, but I just didn't have the time or the resource to do it. Um, and also... It's complimentary. It's very complimentary. And, and you also... I'm sure you've had this at times. You, you do miss the human interaction sometimes. And so it's nice to have colleagues to... Yeah, you know, I, I'm not based in the office. No. As you know, I'm based yeah. in Manchester. I'm not in the London office. But I now look forward to coming down, whereas I didn't before when I was living and working here. Yeah. It's now it's nice to go and see the guys who work in the analysts in the office and you know have that kind of interaction. That's cool. And so 
then so fast forward to now mm. uh, you do obviously you've got your own stuff you're just, just still on a volleyball you're on one of the judicial committee is it for uh, World Badminton so I'm on the ethics panel for World Badminton England netball disciplinary panel um, so yeah I do the I do De Montford on the um, education side I do stuff for Edge Hill University and that's all sort of as I say not what we would call regulated legal work um, and now a lot of my work is also policy work so the, the really interesting the stuff that you would never dream of getting involved in as a lawyer is the work in particular I do with the Council of Europe um, to the work on the International Convention the Macklin Convention and I've been doing that now for working with them for kind of five years on different aspects of the development of the project and the implementation of the convention and now also working with the national platforms which is a key part of the convention. You mean uh, national platforms for monitoring and investigating? uh, Yeah, betting related, well (laughs) the the term now is manipulation of sports competitions rather than match fixing because as a broad, but I only I say this because I was only saying this yesterday. It's a far broader term, and actually, one of the side projects I'm working on with a working group of the council is what what comes within that umbrella of manipulation. It's a lot broader, I think, than yeah. people. Well, we're just talking about this in terms of safeguarding. Oh, yeah, I yeah. think it's one of the one of the problems that that I think comes. Maybe this was going to ask you about. Maybe I'm going to answer you. <laughs> I'm going to ask and answer <laughs> the question that I was going yeah. to ask you, but. That one of the challenges of being um, a lawyer is that with language you need to be very precise. Yeah. But sometimes that precision can also then cause you problems in the sense that you may not see the broader overview or the broader application. So say, for example, in safeguarding traditionally, traditionally yeah. being viewed as, as dealing with minors as opposed to dealing with adults or just dealing with... Uh, you know the welfare, and we, you know, we saw today. You highlight to me the before we start recording this with the mm. Gareth Faraday talking about his um, experience of being at Aston Villa, mm-hmm. being uh, in his words bullied uh, by by a coach, and that would fall under safeguarding. And yet, from a regulatory standpoint, when the lawyers are often involved, it's a very narrow scope where they're going, "All oh, right, this is not really a safe. This is or isn't a safeguarding yeah. issue," and it can actually miss. Um, quite a significant proportion of the people affected negatively. Right? I'm sure that's probably the, the, is that the similar type of discussions you're having at the moment. Yeah, yeah, and I think and it, uh, something I've been considering recently is the kind of evolution of my uh, both professional, personal and sort of academic interest, I guess, in sports. So, so as I say, it started as match-fixing, developed into integrity and governance, moved on to then include disciplinary matters and regulations more broadly and I think now the next natural sort of evolution is duty of care more broadly but do you not think that did you but did you not think this is interesting as, we, as you know one, as you know it's one of my frustrations mm. is that and hence why we do it at our conference and most of the, the bigger events that we do yeah football and we've got coming up is the same it's in a couple of broad range of issues yeah because actually they're all in they're very closely interrelated because we're talking about one sector off one a uh, small number of organizations but because people work in their silos you get this sort of siphoning off where only the people i said it's an integrity space you know often it had been traditionally it was like those yeah. involved in match manipulation were dealing with their investigations one of the guys dealing with corruption at a governance level 
were dealing with their stuff. The guys dealing with anti-doping were dealing with their stuff. There's not a broad enough appreciation of how it all links together. And, and I think probably that's the, you know, speaking to someone as I do, like yourself, and others much more wiser than me, but I was saying that, you know, that's part of the natural evolutionary process is these... Um, as I would say, the sector gets more more professionalised and developed, I guess. Well, because it, it, it's it's still very, very young, Yeah, isn't it? I mean, you, you know, you think about what you would call professional sports in, obviously, Europe and the UK is different to the US, but, you know, for example, one of the sports of, you know, I'm involved with from a refereeing perspective, rugby union, you know, it's only been professional 20 years. Yeah, not long at all. Uh, just over 25 years. And so... It's still very, very young compared to the rest of when you're talking about governance issues related to business more broadly. These have been looked at for decades, whereas now we're only sort of catching up. And I think this this duty care thing really hits home to me as somebody who, um, as some of you will know, you know my my personal sort of well-being, wellness issues, but also. I like to link into the match officials yeah. because one thing at the conference a few weeks ago that you were at in the morning at the, um, in Wales, at the Conference of Sport Wales, which is all about duty of care and integrity, there really wasn't one mentioned until I asked a question about referees and match officials' well-being because there's never the, the, talking, there's no other role in, in sport where you'll face such in, in, you know, intense scrutiny and intense... Um, Pressure. It doesn't matter what level. Well, well I, mean, you're doing I just think you're mad. You're a football referee. Yeah. And I say to you, I just could. I, I personally, I've got a lot of respect for, for officials for this reason. I remember joking around with you that I, I helped out uh, um, <laughs> officiate uh, basketball. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. A basketball competition in union. It was a so like it was a nothing game. It didn't matter. It wasn't. It was just a friendly. Yes. And it was so intense. And I, was, and I just remember thinking, I'm doing this as a favour. Like, yeah. And like I remember when you were a football referee uh, to a very high standard, mm. um, and you're pretty much doing it for free. You were, you know, getting expensive. Basically, but yeah. And I remember th- some of the abuse you used to tell me about. And I think, but this is crazy because without the officials. But then again, I think it's the same. Um, you know, if we look at the, again how we treat some of the participants, like how some of the coaches treat the participants, it's like without the participants, there's no sport. And <laughs> but I think we're in a fascinating age now because. Obviously, you've had, in wake of all these independent investigations into UK governing bodies, you've now got a coaches association coming together saying, well, we've not got a voice. Mm. Um, but, but talking about this overlap I have in my professional and personal career, I think my governance experience and my refereeing background means that I sit on the board of Sports Officials UK, who are a, a, a body who... It's a membership organisation who try and represent the interests of match officials across all sports and we've, we've now got for the first time an Erasmus Plus project across Europe and across different sports nice. to develop some uh, training tools and find out what the needs are to hey, share the resources. Here's one, I'm not sure, yeah, here's uh, boxing officials and tra- um, mixed martial arts officials tra- okay. training on concussion and concussion awareness because everyone would think that it takes place, I almost guarantee you, I don't, I'm not aware anyway, yeah. that it does, and I think that yeah, it's just stuff like that where no doubt their lack of awareness is going to put them at greater risk. Well, well it's definitely going to be... As well as the participants at greater risk. Well, I still think, and I, I might mention too, one of the fascinating sessions when I, when I changed from football to rugby union was going to a concussion session, and there was a video we were playing, this guy was clearly concussed, from a, from, I think it was from a tackle, um, and the referee asked the 
uh, I think it was sort of semi-pro level, asked a physio, so not a qualified medical practitioner, but somebody, as I always say, who knows more about it than I do, uh, said, do you think this player should be playing? She said, no. Or he said, I think it was, said he said no. And the referee did his own question, then let them play on. And the, the guy from the RFU was doing the session said, how many of you would have done the same? And kind of half the room were, were like, yeah, we'd let him play on. And I, and I just sat there quietly, sort of smiling to myself. I was like... Absolutely not. Yeah, yeah. I said if if that was me and that guy gets second impact and yes. goes down, and I have, I had that only last year with a concussion, a female player. She was so angry at me. And I said if you, I said I don't care. There's a minute left, mm. ten minutes left. Where I've said if you don't leave the field, I'll abandon the game. I said it's not a problem to me. I said I'm thinking about your health. You won't be because you're in the heat yeah, of the yeah. moment. Athletes often don't. I always remember, I say this to you, you know, I went to a great talk by a professor from King's College, came to our university when I was, when I was studying sports science. Yeah. And the, his whole um, discussion was a very good one. Um, his presentation and discussion was on, is sport actually good for you? Yeah. And he played a whole host of videos about athletes just doing crazy stuff like Ironmen who, and women who like, you know, have burst appendix because... You know, in theory, their coaches should have stopped them because at the time they weren't in any real state to make an, uh, you know, um, um, an informed choice about whether they should continue or not. A bit yeah. like boxing, when people are really concussed, dehydrated, is in the eleventh, twelfth round. Yeah. Sometimes the coach's job is there to protect the health of the athlete. You know, it should be anyway. At least yeah. throw the towel and get let them come as we say in boxing, let them fight another day. Yes. Um, and I remember just being so surprised at that, and it just made me aware of the fact that how extreme. And often the best athletes, how extreme they can be for tolerance of being uncomfortable in being uh, very dangerous positions, but also their lack of awareness of how dangerous it is. Well, so because say, that point, does it have to be that way? And I think this comes a little bit back to what Gareth's been saying in this piece today. And it also comes to part of the reason, and this one of the things I've been working with the council on, suggested at the, is about how to change the narrative about. Um, integrity and about well-being and concussion and everything how to make it a positive message why do we get into sport nobody when they're young gets into sport for money nobody gets in I think some people do boxing I think I think the whole well, I, I, think, I think when I'm talking <laughs> young I'm talking <laughs> no but I think, very, yeah well but, maybe but, so but, but I think there's there's glory there's yeah. you know, go, go, you know if you, even if you were to break down glory you go okay what, what would uh, glory or limelight mean to someone yeah and it could be just an elevated status within their community yeah right within their peer group sure it could be so I think just to say just for the love of it I think is is, is slightly misleading in the sense that they're still motivating factors. it's idealistic and yeah. perhaps a little naive but I think that the, for me it was escapism like often yeah like as in I enjoyed well, the, I, for me. yeah well I enjoyed the I enjoyed the uh, physicality of it I enjoyed the feeling good, feeling fit, you know, participating with my friends, something to do. Yeah. But absolutely, it was escapism in some ways, in terms of, for, uh, you know, I wasn't very academic. It was something that, that I, I felt good doing. People respected you more for doing it. Yeah. It was a, it was a, it was some, a mastery point as well. You know, something to master was, sure. you know, and that could have been, to be fair, it could have been if I was any good at it. <laughs> Arts or music or... Uh, academia but I think it kind of stems from the fact that one of my frustrations about the uh, anti-corruption match fixing movement is the fact that we really struggle to engage the general sports fan to care obviously who, who is the general sports fan now because this is one of the things that, that you know say with the the, the, the increased 
uh, focus on betting, and we've now seen mm. from from the uh, yeah, over here and other parts of the world now they're starting to self-regulate more, which I think is is is, is telling in itself. The betting companies, right? I know you, you know you could be careful with what you say in this, but well, well, well it's, it's something. But, when I was on the other side of the fence, when I was advising ga- gaming companies, because that was one of the uh, parts of my consultancy business was advising regulatory matters for betting companies. I used to say, and it still applies today. You know, regulators are getting more and more aggressive towards you. If you you need to be more proactive, mm-hmm. you can't just talk about the commercials anymore. That's not so, the so society we're, we're So coming back to this point where the, bet, the fan is, you know, it's mm. the point that I label all the time. There's only, there was a lady called Amanda, I forgot her surname, forgive me, uh, from the from MLS, who uh, they actually, as a mm. challenger brand in the, in the US, they actually go out to their fans and say, hey, why do you watch? Why do you actually yeah. watch? There's n- no one else I've spoken to. Now, I haven't spoken to everyone, but no one else I've spoken to, including the, many of the broadcasters, can tell me why people watch. And when you have that, so when you say, do they go out to the fans... We are well, one. I'm, how do you define a fan? Yeah, right. As a consumer yeah. fan, um, well, I've been convinced, as you know, for a long time, and, and part of the reason why I was interested in U.S. sports and sports betting and integrity more generally in U.S. sport was because, to me, U.S. professional sport is first and foremost about entertainment. Mm. It's not about integrity. So that's a different mindset. And when you come from that position, I think that's why but it's you, taken so long to get people to be interested about be it doping, be it the major concussion issues. But coming back to the education point, my, my overall feeling is, and I believe World Rugby have started to do some innovative things with this. So I saw, and again, because of time constraints, but I understand they've started to do like values-based education in integrity matters. And they've also started to get athletes themselves to deliver the programmes to their own peers. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Like, Which is, but, can, but that's you know, a big can, shift, can, isn't it? You know, Kelsey Erickson from Leeds Beckett, who, who, who you know. You know Kelsey? I don't know. Uh, she works in the, uh, Leeds Beckett. Okay. And um, she's a sociologist and she's, they've got, uh, they do get funding from WADA from the Council of Europe and, right. on the, and the Commission on the Erasmus Plus stuff. Uh, and they've been looking at this, the motivations, what are the motivations, how do you get a better adoption of stuff like whistleblowing policies and stuff like that. And it does come down to, the, well, their initial research at the moment indicates that there is that one importance of the peer group yeah. uh, and, then, and uh, values, etc. And I think one of the other things that maybe that's overlaying this is now that there's such a wealth of research in other aspects of, you know, Life of whether it's on criminal behaviour, yeah. whether it's on organisational theory, you know, you know, there's a science. We understand our minds better than we've ever done before. We've got so we can hopefully, if people are drawing on that information, we can create better forms of regulation and what we do, and hopefully make better decisions on what they choose to regulate. But it seems to me that that as things get get developed, because <coughs> don't know about you, but for me, you know given that we kind of started out roughly at the same sort of time, mm. that one of the things that, that, that I've become more aware of is that stuff that I took for granted that I assumed was correct, mm. as I've become more knowledgeable and have more experience of working in the sector, the more I've realised I've got to challenge everything. And I think that's a yeah. general good life lesson. But I think there's a certain... Yeah. Say, say, for example, in doping, there were certain things that, that, that initially that, that I believed that now I would contest that I would say right oh everyone's against doping it was now clearly that's not the case right and then you have to say the actual better question is what do you consider doping and then do you you know so say for example the UEFA conference they had 
um, the now uh, the new uh, Secretary General for, for FIBA. Yes. Was there and um, did a fantastic presentation. Andres. Yeah, did a fantastic presentation. It was really good on <coughs> on um, and opening basketball. And you look at, say, for example, everyone, you know, the narrative would be in the Wilder movement is that all athletes are against dopers. And yet, <coughs> partly because of the money to lose, the integrity issues, the, you know, the damage to the sport. Well, the NBA, in basketball terms, is the property, mm. right? It's the biggest brand. You know, the players obviously collectively bargain yep. that policy. They have lesser sanctions than they have. They are not, are not really um, looked into it in any, any depth. You know, they but essentially they get lesser sanctions. They have uh, less substances that, that, that they test mm. for, etc., etc., etc. None of the fans really care. Doesn't have really have an impact. The athletes are fine with it. So you'd have to then question that rationale across every. Just applying point blank across every yeah. sport, and that may be the case in in certain sports. But just to say across the board, and I think as we start to, from the sound thing for you as we start to get that more knowledge and start to realise that some of the things that we thought were truths aren't necessarily strict truths yeah, yeah. as such, that then we now need to look at reframing, a better identifying. Again, this sounds like just an evolutionary process. Well, the phrase, the phrase I've used for the past couple of years is we need to reframe the narrative around these issues mm. because we haven't had the impact we should have had. It's clearly still, so we need to have a... And that, as you say, that means questioning again. That means challenging what we once thought to what we to what is the reality maybe as you say and some of that might be quite uncomfortable for people I always think and I always think um, <coughs> that, you know, there's been a Maharati um, sports legist and uh, former um, head of mediation mm-hmm. at the Court of Arbitration for Sport and Research at the Court of Arbitration for Sport I always, I always remember something I was giving her a hard time I think asking some questions you giving somebody a hard time I know yeah I and, and I was coming from a very idealistic perspective I think as always um, about about uh, arbitration and the imbalances that are there and the speed of it and mm. a whole bunch of different things which I think are right to question but she made a very good point I think that you know I, I think about this a lot in terms of sports talk. she was like what do you want ask yourself what do you want she went do you want the perfect system which has limited application or do you want one that is um, that can actually be used and applied and I think obviously ideally what you want is a perfect system that can yeah. be applied, right? Uh, balancing all the the financial restraints, the time restraints, cultural restraints, and everything else. But I just thought it was a really good point because if you look at the regulations that we got now, it's not to say that the the old ones were terrible, or the other the way yeah. what's been done today is terrible. Based it was it was done based on the information that was available at the time, but we should constantly evaluate it, as you say. And I think as long as you've got those mechanisms in place, a bit like you saying, you know, it's your time to step down from. Um, England volleyball. Is it England or British volleyball? As I said, sorry. I know that with, with our unique, with the unique governance issues we face in UK sport and British sport, yeah, it's important thought, to get that distinction right. Yeah, I know that's what I thought when I said it. But the um, on British volleyball, you know, your natural thing is to step down because you know it needs that to, to evolve. Right, that recognition absolutely, and the same with the regulation. Um, Kevin, thanks for I think. Well, I think, that, I think that comes... Oh, I was about to say, actually, probably doing your sort of presenting job. It's, um, probably do a better job. <laughs> I think I was talking about um, this need to, you know, challenge what we what we once thought. And looking back, that comes back to when I talked about my first ever major article and how, I say, people still... But I sometimes wish they wouldn't because <laughs> things have changed. It's all still largely correct, but um, it seems to be a nice way to round off our little chat here. Well, yeah.
Well, that's all we have time for for this show. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Remember, you can follow us at Lauren Sport on Twitter. You can follow me at SPCOTT. You can subscribe to our weekly email and you can find us at laurinsport.com. If you're interested in jobs in the sector, you can go to our job sector page or you can find out the latest events that we have coming up, which our latest one is going to be on the 8th of February in Dublin and then followed by a football conference for two days in May, the 22nd and 23rd of May, and then our annual conference in September in London. Hope you have a great day and thanks for tuning in.